Hey, what's up? This is Mr. Bill. Welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast. My guest today is Adam Neely. He's a jazz bassist and composer, uh, but you probably know him best from his YouTube channel uh, where he dives into shit like music theory and music history and just a bunch of other pressing topics such as his most recent video, The Worst Jazz Solo in History. What a meanie. And uh, he gets millions of views doing it because his videos are fucking awesome. And I suggest you go check out his YouTube channel. Um, before we get to the interview, I want to remind you of the next fee-free day on Bandcamp is coming on June 5th. And this is when I'm going to open the vault on some ancient releases of mine for 24 hours only. So you need to check my Bandcamp on June 5th if you want to get ancient releases. This is um, this is like stuff that I haven't had on on the internet available for purchase for a long long time it's it's basically my entire discography and when i say my entire discography i mean just like shit that i don't even want you to hear but i'm putting it up for one day only because bandcamp is offering a fee-free day and we're going through a pandemic and i'm an artist and i need to make money somehow so this is shit i'm doing to get to get bloody money these days um we're also unveiling a patreon for the podcast over the next week or so and you'll be able to support the show by becoming a patron if you have any suggestions for perks please head over to my discord or my facebook group uh there's links for those in the episode description and let me know what you would think are good perks because i would you know like to build a patreon based on uh community needs and community wants rather than just what i think is good and as always if you want to be a better producer head over to mrbillstunes.com and sign up to become a hardcore ableton ear which gives you access to my entire library of tutorials sample packs project files and all four seasons of the art of mr bill plus more uh so yeah enjoy the episode Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 cool man um well fuck yeah thanks for coming on the podcast i appreciate you taking the time yeah well this is very exciting for me man i'm a huge fan and i'm very honored to be part of the mr bill podcast so nice oh cheers man um yeah how's the quarantine you're in new york right yeah um it's kind of crazy because i i read about new york's insanity and you know i'm just staying in my apartment all day every day it's Groundhog Day eternally. I'm just alone <laughs> with my, yeah, alone with my thoughts. But um, it's crazy. Um, I'm so used to going out and checking out music and checking out, you know, all different kinds of restaurants and things. And of course, can't do that and haven't been able to do that for months. So right, right. Do you live with uh, like family or roommates or anyone? No, I just I live by myself. I have a a little bit of a music office that I have, okay. um, which is kind of nice. It's just you know my place where I make YouTube videos, where I work on music. And, um, I've lived where I am for about a year now and yeah, I'm happy. Nice. Um, yeah, I was just asking, cause it's like, if you haven't left your apartment, but you also don't have uh, housemates, that's like a very different situation to the quarantine I'm in where, uh, I don't really leave my house a whole lot, but I have like a girlfriend that visits me in 10 day increments and then the housemates and stuff. So I'm not completely isolated at least. Yeah. You've had human contact. Uh, right, right. I, it's about two months before I've touched a human being. 
Damn, man. It's fine, though, because I am rather an introverted person, which is strange to think because I have a YouTube channel and I talk right. to a camera, but um, talking to a camera is a fairly lonely business anyway, so it's just kind of business <laughs> as usual. <laughs> right. Um, what have you been doing, like, for food and stuff? Did you just do, like, a big shop at the start and then just cooking? Or <laughs> No, I've been – there's a grocery store. There's a bodega. I got, like uh, – my guy makes me a chopped cheese sandwich, which is – if you don't know what a chopped cheese is, it's like a, it, like a Philly, Philly cheesesteak, except instead of, like, cheesesteak, it's hamburger. So it's – you combine a Philly cheesesteak and a hamburger, and it's a thing called a chopped cheese, and you can really – you know, it's popular in New York. So I get Damn. chopped cheeses wear a mask. I go in, I stay six feet from everybody else, but that's, you know, the real, the real musician lifestyle, chopped cheeses late <laughs> at night. <laughs> right. Damn. Sick. Well, yeah, it sounds like you got a pretty solid setup for the quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's all right. Yeah. Have you been getting a lot of work done? I try. I mean, I'm not sure about you, but it's difficult for me sometimes, um, with a bunch of so-called free time to then allocate it appropriately for creative work. Mm. I sometimes work the best with deadlines, uh, you know, um, knowing that I have to do something right now or have to be someplace is usually a pretty powerful motivator. Um, so for me, it's been like, well, tomorrow's exactly going to be the same as today and so on. And there is no end. So it's difficult to create a framework. It has to be entirely within, you know, I have to do it for myself I mean, for you, do you like, how has your creative output been since the whole thing began? Uh, it's, I mean, I haven't finished anything, but, um, I've started a lot of stuff, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm kind of the same. It's like, I usually have this inherent schedule because, um, I'm a DJ, so I'm usually playing shows every weekend and that requires me going to bed pretty early on Thursday or Friday night, then waking up and taking a pretty early flight to like somewhere in the country and then playing a show there and then the next day doing that and then doing another show and then um coming back on like sort of sunday evening and then i'll do all my laundry and prepare for the week and then sort of mondays through wednesdays or thursdays again i'm just hammering out as many beats as i can to sort of jam in the set for the next weekend um, yeah you, you got like there's a schedule there's a, a clear purpose at every stage of the game you're going here this is right. what you need to do or you, what you want to do for that thing mm -hmm. it's like there's no, there's none of that. And, you know, that's kind of a, uh, people are, I, I saw at the beginning of all this thing, um, when it all started, it's like, people are going to go into quarantine and they're going to leave being amazing at music. And there's going to be all these quarantine albums that drop. And, you know, I don't see that happening. I mean, there are people who are making really cool things, I think, but just as a psychological thing, it's, it's really traumatizing for somebody who, uh, just wants to make stuff and it, for whatever reason you can't, um, mm. when well, you, when, I, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, um, pretty much only last week I, I started sort of thinking about this same thing being like, fuck, like I need either deadlines or just some sort of structure to my yeah. life to start getting stuff done again. So I downloaded Evernote and Microsoft to do and like <laughs> a calendar app and also cold Turkey. I bought that app. Um, I haven't, I haven't heard cold Turkey. What's that one? Uh, so it's kind of like self-control for Mac, but for windows. Okay, and okay. 
Have you heard of self-control? I vaguely, I know it has something to do with self-control. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) No way. (laughs) Get out of here. Um, Yeah. So, so basically the premise is you install this thing on your computer, you add a bunch of sites that are blocks and then the amount of time that it blocks them for per day. So I don't know if you've ever heard of Pomodoro techniques, but like it's um, essentially where you work for 25 minutes and then you take a five minute break. And then you work for 25 minutes, take another five minute break and you do that four times. And then on the fourth time you take a break for 30 minutes and then you just do that all day. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. I have never heard of that. I mean, I do a version of that, I guess, but never so structured. Um, Hmm. The way that my days are being broken down right now is, you know, I wake up at the crack of 11 a.m. and then I work (laughs) and, you know, and at a certain point I say, this is the end of my work day even though it could just keep going on and forever. And then I go for a run like in the evening and I've been running a lot, not because of any benefit to physical health, although generally speaking, if you run, it's better for you. So the people tell me, um, but just literally as a thing to do that, this is the thing that I do every day to end the work day as a mental health thing. It's right. a cleansing, like we're mm-hmm. done because otherwise there is no barrier and, you know, for me, that's new. I'm, I'm not used to having barriers set up for myself that I, I set up for my day and for my work day and work routine. And it's been very helpful. It hasn't been a panacea. It hasn't like completely changed everything. But just the fact that I know that I'm going to be running around in the evening definitely helps. Right, right. Yeah, I've, I've found this cold turkey thing helping a lot with just mm. shutting my, com- like basically just shuts down all distractions for 25 minutes and then lets me in for five minutes at a time every 25 minutes that's super yeah that's super cool i need to i need to do that <laughs> yeah i've definitely found that to be useful because i'm i'm pretty bad at getting distracted otherwise so that's that's been helping me get a bit of work done have there's this uh video do you know cgp cgp gray by any chance uh is it a youtube channel youtube channel yeah and okay. they make really interesting videos but the one that i kind of resonated with me recently was it was talking about how this whole thing that how we're approaching the quarantine and lockdown is kind of like everybody is in their own self-contained spaceship Mm -hmm. and it's important that we maintain that spaceship before we're able to return back to earth i'm kind of like mangling the analogy here a little bit but a big part of it is that we're in these small contained um places very small places that we're not really allowed to leave and it's very important for us to maintain certain physical delineations between the part, the place where we work, the place where we sleep, the place where we eat, the place where we do recreation. And I don't do any of that. I normally just sit here at my computer, I eat, and then I also browse Netflix. You know, like everything is physically in the same spot. So my body is just used to knowing that I can just do all of these things in this physical location. And a big part in like past couple of weeks is just trying to figure out, all right, well, this is the area of my place where I'm going to do this. Even if it's just like a five by five foot thing, this is mm-hmm. the part place where I, you know, read or whatever. And that's actually been pretty helpful. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's me. Ma- the whole thing has made it. So all the things that weren't working before are now um, very apparent. And so I kind of have to figure out ways of uh, working around it. Yeah. I actually find these sort of like, uh, like work ethic hacks and um, task management strategies and all that kind of stuff. Pretty in, like fun, actually. Yeah, it's like it becomes a creative it. game almost. Like right, exactly. Have Have, have yeah. you ever heard of a guy called Thomas Frank who no, does YouTube channel? 
Yeah, so he's a YouTuber as well. And he, he basically, his whole YouTube channel is just on like how to be more productive and be less distracted. Oh, yeah, no, no, Thomas Frank. Okay, yeah, I have, I have. He is yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> it's such yeah, a meta like, channel because he's like, oh, you know, I had to uh, set up a work list to like make this video and, and, you know, I had to write a script and all of this stuff. It's like he's basically making videos about how to make his videos. There's, that's a whole cottage industry on YouTube. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it'd be like writing songs about how to write songs. <laughs> But hey, you know, um, there there is a, a, I, I don't know why I know this, but there is a, a whole genre of musical theater and a whole genre of like films about like people writing films or writing musicals um, just because people are told to write what you know. And for a lot of people, they don't have much to say beyond, you know, writing a script. Um, I think musicians have a have a leg up on them because it's hard to be that meta about music. Uh, like there's no, I don't know, the self-reference, you, you don't, you don't, you don't get caught in that kind of like self-reference, not that Thomas Frank's videos are like bad because of that, but that is like an interesting that you just can't do with music. Well, also music is just something that doesn't really naturally occur too much in the real world other than I suppose like the hum of planets and maybe bird song and stuff like that. Right. Mm. Um, whereas other things like film, it's like you're telling a story and I guess emotions are abstract and language is abstract, but for the most part, it's stuff that we're way more familiar with because we're, uh, you know, experiencing these kind of similar situations that films are depicting and stuff sort of on a daily basis almost, or at least hearing about them or whatever. Yeah. And they're, you know, musicians who will, uh, write music that imitates birdsong. There's the French composer Olivier Messiaen, and he wrote all this classical music that was based on birdsong and orbital resonance, like the idea of the harmony of the spheres. There's so many people mm. who have like worked with that idea, uh, but it doesn't feel too like it doesn't feel self-referential in the same way. I think um, you know, and then there's plenty of people. There's found sound stuff. You just record the stuff around you, and then that becomes music, quote unquote. But normally we're trying to arrange music in a certain way. We're trying to like create rhythms that we enjoy. And then it, it's not so much like, Hey, this is the sound of a traffic light. Enjoy it as music. It's more <laughs> like, how, how can I use this traffic light as music? Like as, I don't know, a, a melody, like you sample it. And uh, actually, it um, you know, that Billy Eilish song, bad guy. Yeah. That dun 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 dun. <laughs> um, there's a hi-hat shaker type thing in the background, which is actually a traffic light recorded in Australia. <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. But you're not getting the sense like, oh, I'm listening to a traffic light right now. I'm listening yeah, to exactly. a hi-hat. Right, right, right. And, and so, you know, when you make something music, quote unquote, when you um, like sample something, sample a garage door closing, and then that's your kick drum, it's always you're turning a sound into another sound that doesn't have a physical real world connotation. Uh, you know, it, it becomes the kick, but what is the kick? Like it's mm. a, it's a low thuddy sound that influences your feeling because it's hitting at a certain frequency and blah, blah, blah. But you're actually listening to a garage door and that kind of like back and forth, I think is kind of interesting, uh, especially when listening to a bunch of like found sound recordings and you know what Andrew Wong does occasionally on his channel, like, have you ever listened? Um, have you ever listened to an album by Amon Tobin called Folly Room? No. Is okay. it exactly what I'm talking about? Or <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's probably maybe like one of the first kind of really highly produced things of what you're talking about. Uh, do you know Amon yeah. Tobin? Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he's 
nuts. So it's like one of his earlier albums, I guess. I think it was like 2001, I want to say. It was pretty old. Um, so I, I hit up a bunch of people on, well, not a bunch. I, I messaged my Discord server and my Facebook group saying you're going to be on the podcast and if there was any questions uh, oh, cool. that they would like for me to ask you. And actually what we're talking about leads into a question that somebody asked, which is, um, is music an invention or a discovery? And I think that could be like an interesting point Ooh. of conversation. Well, I mean, that relates, of course, to the famous question, is math an invention or a discovery? Because, you know, did we come up with the concept of two plus one equals three or is two plus one equals three just inherent? Because when you have two objects and then you add one, it becomes three objects. And that's across every every kind of representation of what two and one is. Yeah, like if, if in what you're saying is basically music is math then, right? Yeah. I mean, to that effect because the planets are going to orbit in certain ratios and you can interpret, you know, what music is, is just things occurring over time and then sound waves occurring in time, something like that. Um, I think we invented music because, you know, it's not music unless we give some context to it, unless we hear it as music. Like you can listen to the ocean as like just the sound of the ocean, or you can hear it as like, white noise in a a particular piece of music that context that changing of the sound from non-musical to musical is purely human um Mm. i don't know what i mean what do you think in terms of uh it being invented versus it just being out there uh i think i think you're correct i think it's um something that's inherently existent and then we find certain things about whatever's already going on to be entertaining and musical and fun to listen to for us. And I think the reasons why we find stuff fun, well, there's a bunch of reasons. I mean, for starters, we're biologically uh, locked to only being able to hear between 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz if you're lucky. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so you really only like a very narrow spectrum of the sound waves that are possible to be created anyway. Um, like we're not hearing fucking extremely low like two hertz hums by giant planets or anything like that and all right i don't know i talked about this on a podcast with somebody too and they were like what if you could turn the hum of the planet off would it be like the ultimate you know how like a heater is on in a room and you turn it off and you're like holy fuck that was humming that whole time like would it just be the ultimate sense of relief well another thing is two hertz with that what is that that's twice per second something's happening two times per second Mm -hmm. and then you know uh if you could what we're when we're hearing the whole human pitch perception, 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz, that's human's ability to hear something as pitch, but mm. you can still hear something as rhythm if it's slower than that. You know, if you play a kick mm. drum twice per second, it sounds like a rhythm. But if you play a kick drum at 100 times per second, it sounds like a pitch. And that that dif- difference between uh, pitch and rhythm is entirely in our brains. There's oh, nothing yeah, up. Totally. Yeah, so it's it's just a human thing. And it'd be really cool also, like one of the things I've thought about um, is making, using, you know, in the future as a means of understanding music differently or creating different kinds of music. What if you could alter your brain to hear music between 20,000 hertz and 40,000 hertz as music? There's an entire, you know, there's an entire frequency spectrum that we have that occurs above our current hearing. What if we could do that? What kind of Mm. music would, you know use that kind of frequency spectrum what could we do musically that we wouldn't be able to do now with the current you know spectrum that we hear in 
uh, I think that's really exciting and really cool. You know, dogs, cats, and probably just various- be the same sort of thing, but just like starting <laughs> from twenty thousand and ending it. You know, we'd still probably split the octave into thirds, like we kind of do already, right? Like zero to a hundred, a hundred to a thousand, or ten thousand, and then ten thousand plus. But we just start from twenty and end at forty. Yeah, um, that's that's true. I mean, I I honestly don't know. I mean, maybe there are physical considerations also on what kinds of instruments would be able to make things that high and pitch. Um, you know, there's a lot to consider. It's basically just an expanded sonic palette. It's like right, having right. more colors. One of the interesting things is that we only see one octave of color. If you look at the tetrahertz of like ultraviolet light versus uh, infrared light, there's only about, you know, it's only twice the frequency at which red light is uh, vibrating or sorry, it's the other way around, right? Is red, red light is the, the faster spectrum and blue light is the darker spectrum. Anyway. I don't know. Um, I know blue light is the one that keeps you awake at night and that's why I have flux installed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting thing because we see in one octave, but we hear in 10 octaves. Mm-hmm. And it, but, our, you know, but our resolution is like very different between those octaves, right? Like, so for instance, um, if you go into the lower lower spectrum mm. of what, what we're hearing, like the first few octaves. Um, <clears throat> if I played you like, a, uh, let's say 45 hertz and mm. f- 50 hertz, like a five hertz difference, you'd be able to hear that as two different sub notes if you're on a decent sound system. Or if I played, you know, like 80 hertz and 83 hertz, you'd probably be able to hear the difference in pitch there. But if I played you 18,000 hertz and 18,003 hertz, you would not be able to hear the difference. Well, yeah, because so like, yeah, I mean, we have different resolution. I think like so, our resolution tends to the to the lower end of that spectrum than the higher, and the higher end just becomes more sort of like a smear of high noise and color. Well, the difference is, I mean, it, the difference is mathematical. Like the difference between forty five and fifty is way more than the difference between eighteen hundred and eighteen hundred and three or whatever, um, because our listening, our hearing is logarithmic. So one of the things, you know, we, we listen to music and we listen to pitch, we divide it up into cents, so a hundredth of an octave. And the difference in cents between 45 hertz and 50 hertz is much larger than the difference in cents between whatever, 18K and I don't know what the, the uh, counterfactual is here. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, that's just, a, a I guess, going back to the idea of if, is music found or is it invented? I mean, it's, it's invented. Everything exists between our two ears. Everything exists in our brain and how we're just interpreting the stimuli that's occurring around us. Maybe that stimuli is based on certain mathematical principles like, Hey, you know, the orbit of Jupiter is like eight times the orbit of Mercury or whatever. And you can combine the two and that's, you know, music of the spheres, but it's just us giving context to all of that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think another thing about music that we like, um, in rhythm, you know, is we always like stuff's in twos and fours. And and I've Mm. heard that that can be related to walking because we're so used to the feeling of one, two, one, two. Yeah. There's, um, do you know Vijay Iyer by any chance? He's a, um, so he's a a amazing, um, jazz pianist, but he also, um, teaches at Harvard and is very deeply involved in cognitive science and researching, embodied cognition in music. And so he, there's these different like tiers on which we like feel the most comfortable. Like for most music, it's about 60 BPM to 180 BPM. That's kind of like our comfortable range of tempos. Mm -hmm. And you know, that you can break it down to different 
activities that the human body does on a regular basis, like walking, for example, or um, breathing. You can map our comfortability with different tempi. Or like to, your heartbeat or whatever. Yeah. Um, I get, yeah, I guess the heartbeat, you know, I guess what what's healthy, like 60 to 100-ish, I guess, which is, you know, on the slower end of the spectrum when we're talking about musical tempos. But at the same time, that's, it fits, everything fits. We could listen to a bunch of music at like 250 beats per minute, but that hasn't been very comp, like people don't do that. People don't make music comfortably at 250 beats per minute where you're feeling the beat every, every time, like 250 times per second per minute. Right, right. Yeah. That's beats per minute. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I like that idea that there's always a human connection to tempo. Um, like walk. Right. So, so yeah. So I think where we've gotten to here is that, Music inherently exists in the universe, but humans, due to our biological restraints and otherwise, like a very small fraction of the music that exists, most likely because, well, A, we can't hear a lot of it, and B, uh, it's sort of imperative to our existence or you know, in, in, linked to our existence in certain ways that we would enjoy certain things because humans love familiarity and these things feel familiar to us for certain reasons. Absolutely, yeah, and humans, our bodies haven't changed all that much since the beginning of music, <laughs> um, you know, Don's civilization. So the things that will feel good for us now might have something to do with how they felt 5,000 years ago. I mean, there's uh, many cultural factors involved, but at the same time, there are some things which are similar, not the same, but similar because we are all in fact humans and, you know, we're relating to music in a very human way. Um, yeah, so it's, it's found. There's, or it's not found. It's uh, invented. There we go. And right. question answered. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, cool. We can move on to a different question. Uh, let, let's talk about AI music because. Um, oh yes, yes. <laughs> I was hoping you'd bring that up. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'll let you start. Like where you stand on it. Do you, like, I guess the the big question that everyone wants to know is. Uh, I guess, do you think it's possible that a computer could write your music for you and how long that would take and what that would require if you think it's even at all possible? Uh, yeah, I think it is possible. Um, are you familiar at all with Jukebox? Uh, it just no. came out actually, like maybe a week ago. Have you heard about this thing, Jukebox? No, I, have, I have not. Okay, this thing is pretty ridiculous. Basically, what it can do is it can train on raw audio, which it basically listens to the individual, uh, all the individual ones and zeros of a raw audio file and trains on that. Um, most of the time, AI trains on MIDI, so a simplification of the audio. Mm -hmm. But this particular one can train on raw audio and can produce some things which are pretty amazing. So basically what it does is it listens to Frank Sinatra it listens to Bruno Mars, it listens to all of these artists, and then what it can do is spit back a novel piece of audio that sounds like a Frank Sinatra song. It sounds like Frank Sinatra actually singing. And sometimes you can actually understand words, like novel words that Frank Sinatra is putting together. And the audio quality of the file sounds kind of crappy. It's not mm -hmm. very high fidelity at all. It sounds like a it's been run through a cassette tape many, like too many times. It has this lo-fi quality to it, right. but it, is, it, it sounds exactly like a lost Frank Sinatra song that never existed before. Yeah, and so this reminds me of a thing that I found online a while ago called Liarbird, 
and mm. it's sort of similar. Basically, you, you go onto this website, it says allow microphone access, you give it microphone access, and then it just starts putting sentences up on the screen and you start saying these sentences into your microphone. And after you say about 50 of them, it basically has a perfect representation of your voice. And then you can type into a box any sentence you want and hit generate. And it just generates out an MP3 that sounds exactly like you. But it has that, well, it doesn't sound exactly like you. It kind of has that same uh, quality you're talking about. It's a little bit crackly and spectrally fucked up and like, and sound exactly right. But, but it definitely sounds like you. And yeah, and th- I mean, I've heard, I've heard of that. And I think it's a little bit different because it has a... Um, a lookup of all of the phonemes that you said and then is able to recreate them in a way. And I'm sure there's some machine learning involved mm. in that. Right, right. Um, and that's obviously really scary um, to be able to have that kind of data for any human being and just be able to make them create audio, you know, have the well, audio. Specifically for somebody like you or I who has a oh, lot of God. your voice online already, it's like anybody could just take all of your videos or all of my podcasts and just like run them all through something. And- yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. Do you have ownership of your own, the sound of your own voice by that point? Um, I mean, I like to think that I do, but at the same time, there's audio of me everywhere. Anybody could do that. And you could train an AI to go through and comb through everything and also train them to just generate novel sentences based on basically weighting the probability of me saying a certain word versus another word. It could just start babbling on and just start creating novel new sentences without any sort of um, without any sort of information to say, like, this is what I want you to say. This is what I don't want you to say. Um, and that's what's happening with AI music is it's able to listen to the raw audio and weigh certain like samples against other samples and generate a probability on the what's going to happen next. Mm. Um, and that's it's scary and it's interesting and it's obviously scary for musicians because, hey, we're going to be out of a job and, you know, it's an uncanny valley. And it kind of has the same feeling of, you know, when you watched uh, like whenever you watch a film and you see somebody who an actor who has passed, but they were able to like do some weird deep fake wizardry to like, you know, post it on a CG mannequin or whatever. And it almost looks exactly the same as if the actor was there. And, you know, we're getting to that point also now with audio uh, where you can almost do it. It's not the same. Uh, It's doesn't, it's not really a, a replacement for actors or musicians, but you can get a pretty close resemblance. Um, but what's kind of cool, though, is that weird crackly spectrally sound. I think you can do some really weird fucked up things with that eventually. Musicians haven't quite grappled with it yet. But if you go to a- OpenAI, um, that's the name of the research lab that did this thing, Jukebox, you can just listen to through these things. And it, some of them are strange, but like kind of cool. You can definitely probably sample them and then like work with them. Like one of the there's another one. Um there's another vocal synthesis company that did a bunch of like, I think Jay-Z wrapping the Navy SEAL copy pasta. (laughs) Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah. yeah, It's fucking awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, there's so much cool stuff that you can create with this technology. Uh, And I think that's the exciting thing. That's the thing that I think musicians should really focus on is like, what can we do with this rather than being afraid of what the, repercussions are the repercussions are going to come but adapting to it and being able to make interesting musical statements i think that's going to be the fun thing right it's probably similar in the sense to like when we invented agriculture or something and farmers or you know people 
independent farmers were sort of like, well, fuck, like, what am I going to do for a job now kind of thing? And it's like, well, you know, now you can do something else. Go, <laughs> you don't have to do this anymore. We just have a fucking machine that does this now. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's an industrial revolution for musicians. It's an artificial intelligence revolution for musicians and the whole world. And it's unfortunate, but at the same time, I think it's important for everybody to, to think about maybe not the good things, but things change and how can we do, how can we create new things? How can we use this moment to our advantage? Mm. So um, I think of, I think yeah. of the question a little bit differently. Mm. Um, well, so I, 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 I mean, I, I know from like probably a programming perspective, it mm. makes more sense to just feed a, a machine audio files and have it read the ones and zeros and like the bit data and like the, uh, you know, uh, where the wave file, like where the waveform is at like every point in the file and, and build a database of information that way. I know that that probably makes more sense, but I like to think of a program that just sits in the background of your computer that you can choose to install that just watches all of your processes for like a year when you're in Ableton or something, right? And oh, so Ableton, like a process-based thing. Right, exactly. And Interesting. Then, um, yeah. You know, in Ableton, you only have you know, a very finite amount of VSTs and a very finite amount of samples. And we, you know, like going back to what we are talking about before with music, we only like a pretty finite amount of notes. I mean, we only like, out of the whole spectrum, we only like 12, really. And then we really only ever use seven in a song unless you're doing a key change somewhere. And then, um, you know, also... Uh, we, we like finite rhythms and you know, everything is pretty finite if you think about it that way. And I think you could have a, a, a program that just sits in the background of your computer, just looking at the decisions that you're making all the time and just build an average mean for like what it is that you choose to do in every situation along the way. And after you've written maybe, I don't know, a couple of hundred songs and it's, it's seen you do all of that, this thing could then just be like, cool, I, I know your process <laughs> and just like spit it out, spit out new tunes, you know? Yeah, I mean, it would be hard to quantify that, too, because, I mean, we all have our processes of, like, making things, right? But how can you tell, like, if you if you have two samples and you make a decision, an artistic decision between the two of them, how could the machine know what goes on in your head? They, they know what, cho- what you chose, and I guess maybe you can say they'll be able to figure out the mean between all of that. But that, that sample size needs to be gigantic in order to make any sort of meaningful um, decision. And also, our tastes change. Yes, there is a finite level. You know, there are finite materials to work with. I would actually take issue to the fact that there are only 12 notes. You can make microtonal music, but of course, <laughs> that's a very, very small, very small part of the population. Yeah, and good luck that. doing that in, uh, <laughs> in DAWs. I mean, you uh, can with like MPE and Bitwig and like, you know, Omnisphere has, you know, you can load ton files into it. I know, but like it limits you to like six VSTs. Let's be real. Yeah. And also the fact is, is we don't like feeling limited by our technology. We like feeling creative with it. And when, when yeah, you start I, like dialing I, in the tuning, I, it's I would just actually, like yeah, I would argue that if you, if you start messing with microtonal tuning, it actually makes it easier for this thing, for this process based thing to like pick up what you're doing. Cause then you're limited by to like Omnisphere, Zebra 2, Contact, Right. Uh, what other things eat, eat ton files these days? Maybe like, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's true. I, I think that'd be interesting, but I think that there, the, by the point we get, by the time we get to that point, we will already have AI in many, many other more advanced forms. So 
that maybe even it wouldn't need, like maybe it would train on other AIs who are doing the uh, lower level processes of choosing between two samples or whatever. So you could have like a meta AI training these other things that are, you know, working at a much more granular level. I don't know. I, so I don't this thing, yeah. Hmm? Yeah, there's this, there's this thing that Facebook can do where just based on like where your mouse is hovering on the screen and stuff like that, and also based on like the size of your screen and the kind of sound card you have plugged in and stuff like that, and just all these things, they can sort of get so much data about you without you even clicking on anything, just just by like watching where your cursor is and, and all of that kind of stuff. Like and how much some, coffee you had that day. They probably have research like based on yeah, cell phone ex- exactly. footage, you know, of people drinking coffee and comparing that to when the mouse moves at what point. Like you can get so incredibly granular with that um, right that's what i'm saying so yeah. it's like the the this processes based thing would not necessarily need to know what's going on inside your head to know which sample you're going to pick you know like I, I think you're right though it would need like a large sample size and, and facebook has that because there's fucking yeah. billions of people using it but um so yeah th- this brings up something interesting which is the idea that behavior is a result of your artistic process like you can gauge somebody's artistry based on their behavior and like that kind of level um you know it's a, a fundamental idea of like what is consciousness uh is it the things that you do can you like really tap into the conscious thoughts of somebody based on their behavior um you know that's essentially what this ai would be doing it would be making mm. it'd be modeling your consciousness based on all the little things that you do over a year or whatever Maybe right, Facebook right. is about to, you know, be able to create sentience that way. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> well, this this leads us into another good question that was asked. Um, what is creativity? Oh, uh, that's like how, how how do you define creativity? I have my own definition for it, but I'm curious. Uh, that's it's uh, too too big. I don't know. Um, creativity. I think it's one of those words that gets thrown around and isn't particularly meaningful when you're trying to answer it in any kind of like in depth um the ability i think for me it would be the ability to see many different possibilities and make decisions like definite decisions about which possibility to employ so i think of the creative process often as uh some of all destructions that's a quote from picasso Mm -hmm. anytime you're making something you're always having to choose between two equally good things or two more or less the same things. And whenever you're making something, you're having to throw out something that possibly could have worked. Right. And the creative process is just destroying things, just throwing out all of these ideas saying, no, not that, no, not that, no, not that. And being confident enough to make those decisions and not waffle too much. The more confident mm-hmm. you are with those decisions, I feel like the more creative you are. But mm-hmm. that said, it's, there are many different kind of creative processes, and I'm not sure if that's the best definition of creativity. Well, what, but I what think you just that's what I do. Yeah, what you just said uh, reminds me of um, something my acoustician told me. He said, "He said a perfect room is the sum of all bad rooms." Basically, <laughs> he's like, if you can get your room sounding completely flat, then it will sound good in every other room with weird anomalies and stuff. Um, but yeah, as for what creativity is i kind of think about it in the same way i think um creativity is being able to look at something and figure out uses for it beyond its intended use basically Mm. so you know for instance you might look at a uh i don't know a c major chord and be like well what if we use so full disclosure 
and we'll get into this too. I don't know like any music theory. So you know what a C major chord is. That's more, <laughs> that's <yeah>. music theory. <laughs> okay. I know what a C major chord is. So yeah, um, so that's fine. <laughs> okay. But like, let's say instead of using it in the C major context, you use it in some other context, right? Like that, that to me is kind of what creativity is. But then let's say like it gets even more meta because then let's say, I don't know, there was a whole period of like jazz that used the C major chord in this other context. And then there's this whole period of classical that probably use it in this like specific context. But then you figure out how to use it in some other crazy context, like maybe somebody like Jacob Collier has done with his super mega shit or whatever it's called. <laughs> super mega shit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, what is it called? Super mega hyper. Uh, super mega meta, I don't Super mega meta hyper. There's a bunch of words and then the word Lydian at the end of it. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> So I assume what he's done is taken that and used it in some weird context that no one's thought of or something like, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I don't know, that's how I define creativity. And, and more, more or less in my world, it's kind of taking, like you were just saying earlier, taking sounds like a garage door and using it as a kick drum, right? Like that's creative. That's taking something that's supposed to shut intruders out from stealing your fucking electric bike in your car and turning it into a musical instrument. <laughs> yeah, I can get behind that for sure. I think it's, it's not even repurposing the use of a C major chord or the use of a, you know, garage door or whatever. It's being able to see how it works in different contexts and being able to know that something might work in a context. I think that's the thing. Like I know because of my experience and I know because of my creativity that this garage door will work as a kick drum. And, you know, there's that you can make an informed decision about that. Like you can hear the lower frequency content. You can hear the tail. You can hear the attack. You can hear, you know, acoustic elements of the garage door that would then make it work as a kick drum. But it's also just then the, um, I guess, just the confidence to do it, too, to just instantly, because of all of these factors, make that decision and be like, yeah, garage door, sick kick. All right. I definitely think that's a big part of it in the creative process. Right. But let's say, for instance, like in my line of work, like electronic music production, um, I actually wouldn't class it as that creative anymore to take like yeah. the yeah. sound of a garage door and turn it into a kick drum because I've I've had so much experience with it that I know now, oh yeah, I could load that into Ableton, put a transient shaper on it, run it through OTT, run it through, you know, another compressor that's adding attack to it, put it in a sampler, put a little pitch bend on the start of it to give it that really kicky attack and then layer it with an 808 to give it like a nice sub and then cut the the lows and, and the garage door can be like the, the transient like tick of the kick and then the 808 can be like the, the oomph of the kick. And then like to somebody else who's just starting out, they might be like, holy fuck, that's so creative. I would have never thought to do all of that. But for somebody like me who's made a shitload of kick drums, because uh, I've made lot of, lots of sample packs, I wouldn't necessarily call that creative anymore. It's like more just, <laughs> it's almost systematic at that point, right? So um, yeah. So at this I mean, point, it's, it's almost like for me to be creative, I have to like go against the things that, that I've become accustomed to and experienced knowing. Well, do you have to, I mean, that then goes to the, it's, it's like the process is the creative thing then. It's not the thing that you make. It's like you, you know how to do all that stuff and you're good at it and you have a supreme technical knowledge on how to do all these things. So is being creative coming up with new processes for doing the same thing? Like, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know exactly what good example of this, but is it really not just about the thing that you're making, but how you made the thing? Is that the creativity, like the how of the whole thing? 
Well, I, yeah, yeah, either that or like the combinations of certain things. Like for instance, in a DJ set, like mixing a certain song with another song that that shouldn't go together, you know, like a Beatles song over like a dubstep tune or something like that. But now it's like everyone does that too. So that's not creative either. So <laughs> is it just doing things that people haven't done before? Is that what creativity is? Well, I think like it requires some sort of like stretching of your imagination to imagine things that haven't been done before for sure. Ah, uh, okay. So yeah, I, I can get behind that. Like imagination is the big thing. And if somebody has already done it, then you don't need to imagine it anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. So because you are imagining something that has not been done before, but is a combination of things that have been done before and you're imagining something in a new novel context, that then is the creative, like that is the muse. That is the thing that gets us excited and makes us feel like we, we are being creative. Right. And, it, uh, and you have to somewhat stand on the shoulders, shoulders of giants whilst doing this. Because, I mean, you can't imagine like somebody in the 15th century or something was like, I'm going to invent Ableton and there's going to be these electronic samples in there and these electronic instruments. Like this was, say, before the invention of even like fucking pianos and shit. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And yeah, I mean, we're, that's what we're doing all the time. We're using right now we're using sounds that have already been made before, like words are fundamentally not her own creation you know where we in order to communicate in order to think in order to do anything we have to do we have to borrow from other people's work and that's just the fact of human life we're a social creature and we very much exist within other people and what they've done and you know having being part of i guess the creative process might be being able to add something new to that discussion being able to add something new to the language and not only new, but meaningful. Like I could just start making up random words, but they wouldn't have much meaning. However, if I could think of a word that had, for whatever reason, a lot of meaning and was very poignant, that then would be a, a valuable creative input to the English language. And I think when you're a musician, you're trying to find v- valuable new things to add to the musical language as well. Mm. Speaking of um, associated meanings with things... Do you think it's at all possible that we could have developed as a society that found minor keys to sound happy and major keys to sound sad? Well, I think uh, context is everything. I mean, minor keys, yeah, sad. Major keys, yeah, happy. But, but um, why? But, well, that's that's cultural. It doesn't exist in the same way in Indian classical music. There are a variety of different kinds of meanings that are ascribed to different rags or ragas, scales that have nothing to do with the Western context. Um, You know, a lot of it is there is the harmonic series and a major chord is created from the first five uh, harmonics of the harmonic series. And so there is like this fundamental oneness that we might feel a feeling of resolution that might come with a, a major chord. But, you know, there European music, music that was based in what, you know, Western European music, classical music, is the only musical tradition in the entire world when we're going back thousands of years that developed a a serious system of keys and harmony. If you look at any other style of music, there isn't chords. You don't have chord progressions in traditional like uh, Turkish music or like very traditional ancient Japanese music. You don't have chord progressions the same way that we have today. Like you got Mm. a C chord, go into a B flat chord or go into a G minor chord or whatever. Um, so, so much of this is really culturally dependent and, you know, major keys are happy, minor keys are sad, 
But that's just because that is the cultural context that developed in Europe, you know, over the past five or 600 years. And that also, also wasn't always wasn't the case. If you go back to Gregorian chant, most of it is in minor modes and Dorian modes. And sometimes it's, you know, very, uh, joyous music. It's sometimes it's very sad music. Sometimes, you know, there's a variety of different emotional valence to Gregorian chant, but it's all to us would sound minor. It's just like happenstance of culture, which I think is really interesting because it, it shows that music is not really totally predetermined. There are certain constants like the harmonic series, but a lot of it really just comes down to, you know, our relationship to the culture that we grew up in. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of just like association, same as words and meanings, right? I, I think so too. Yeah. I mean, the word, words don't have meaning on themselves. Like we ascribe a certain kind of meaning to it based upon the sounds. Mm. And, you know, that's the fun thing with music because meanings can change, <laughs> which is fun. For sure. Yeah. Perhaps like when all of the Renaissance era music was made or something, it like <laughs> had a completely different uh, sort of annotation attached to it emotionally than it does now. Of course. Yeah. Well, my favorite example of this is, um, so Bach, uh, he wrote a series uh, in Goldberg variations is a very serious highfalutin piece of music. And Bach was a very serious highfalutin musician. He was a church musician, but at the end of the Goldberg variations, he includes a lot of really like includes the melodies of a lot of these really, uh, shall we say, blue drinking songs. Like really, apparently the lyrics are really, like really naughty. And to us, we're listening to this music and we're like, oh, this is beautiful. This is amazing. But it would be like, I don't know, including uh, just something like really like dirty lyrics in a song and then just getting away with it because we don't have the context for the box drinking songs that have dirty lyrics, but we're interpreting it as being something very beautiful and divine. You know, context changes all the time. And to something that we find, you know, really goofy and like meme music, for example, I think this is honestly going to happen, like meme music and all the stuff that then becomes popular on TikTok or whatever, stuff that we consider just dumb and, you know, the lowest common denominator. There might be an element of that, that 50 years from now, people look back on reverence and like, oh, the good old <laughs> days of the meme music and, you know, there might yeah. be some context lost. Once the world devolves into idiocracy and everyone's just sitting in their houses watching Ow, my balls. And, like, <laughs> and then they're looking back at our memes as, as if they're like God tier intelligent level jokes or whatever. Oh man, SpongeBob memes as God tier <laughs> jokes as like wit, like the Mark Twain of, <laughs> of this generate. I, yeah, I could see it happening. Why not? Cool. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's probably a good segue to um, talk about music theory then. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, like I said, I don't really know a lot of music theory. I know a bit of like stuff, but not, 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 not a lot. Like I can't be writing a chord progression and be like, ah, oh, you know, it'd be sick, this chord. So what I do is I just use my ears and I just sort of noodle around until something sounds right to me. And then I've had people who are into jazz and stuff before hit me up and be like, oh, I really like love the use of that chord that you put there or whatever. And I don't know, the opinion I've built on music theory is it's not necessarily a good way to write music, but more a good way to perhaps justify it after the fact. Um, what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think, I think you can go way beyond that. Um, in theory, uh, any musician should not be thinking of any kind of formal elements or shouldn't really be working so much that formally. Like 
the one chord would go to the five chord, and then it should go to the two chord here, and then the flat three or whatever. Because anybody who has been working with that anyway eventually just forgets it because they know how things work. They don't need to be thinking that technically while they're writing. And theory can be a very useful tool for communicating information between musicians. And I feel like that's ultimately its main value as a means of communicating using words instead of using music to communicate. So for example, like you, you come up with a chord progression and then you want to describe that chord progression to another musician who, for whatever reason, isn't able to hear that chord progression. And then you can say like, oh, it's a one, five, six, four progression. Or you could just play it for the musician and they would know that sound and have that idea in their head. It's kind of pattern recognition. It's being able to assign labels to things. And that in itself is not good or bad. It's just something that can aid in communication. But beyond that, for the creative process, it, it, shouldn't, um, it shouldn't really be part of it. One of, the, one of my favorite jazz musicians and great jazz musicians of all time, Charlie Parker, if you were to go and analyze his solos and his improvisations, you would find an incredibly complex series of different melodies and different relationships between the melody and the chord. It, it's, in, it's intense. But it's going by so fast that no human could have that kind of understanding of what they're doing in the moment. And essentially what's happening is he's reacting based on of all of his training and based on the muscle memory that was associated with all these concepts in the moment. And he, and he talks about this, never thought about what he was doing at all. Even though he could go back and analyze and explain and whatever, that's not necessary in the moment. In fact, that's very counter. It's not what you should be doing. You should be rising above all of that because it doesn't, it straight up doesn't matter. Even if it, it's useful in certain contexts, it just does not matter and it just gets in the way. And I feel like one of the big you know, things that people do with music theory, especially if you learn a little bit, it becomes a little dangerous because you think you should do it at, and think along those lines and think that formally along every point of the creative process without knowing that there is there comes a point where you just stop because it isn't as useful for you anymore and you know people watch my channel and they enjoy the music theory stuff that i talk about but you know whenever i'm writing anything and i'm not nearly as experienced a, as a music producer as you i i ignore everything there's never a moment where i'm like this chord should go to this chord except just what i think might sound good by ear and, you know, I, I don't like the idea that music theory should be something that is that close to you in the creative process, or at least that yeah. kind of music theoretical. I, I totally agree. Yeah. yeah, I always think like uh, of music when I'm writing it as either it should just be making me feel a certain way or mm -hmm. yeah. it should just remind me of something or it should just, I don't know, it's all to me just about a feeling and just tonally if it like sounds very pleasant to me or or if i'm specifically trying to make it sound jarring if it just sounds jarring to me or like whatever as long as it's hitting the mark in that way like i don't feel like any more needs to be thought about and i've been talking to a lot of people about music theory for years and, and it's not that i'm reluctant to learn it i just i'm busy writing music so yeah, yeah. i mean uh I think one of the things, especially for trained musicians who would go to a music school and then learn this like in a classroom and all that stuff, is they forget to listen to music 
along those lines where, you know, the most basic lines, like what is the feeling that I'm trying to feel from this piece of music? What is the feeling that I'm trying to evoke? Instead, music then becomes like, oh, that is a four chord. Oh, that is the harmonic minor scale. And then it becomes identifying elements rather than what those elements do. And, you know, I I think that's the danger of learning a little bit, like a little bit of knowledge can be really dangerous. Yeah, I was going to say it's it's sort of the same, I think, with um, with production, because if you learn a little bit like some of the fundamentals, right, like Mm. uh, you shouldn't have low frequencies hanging around in anything other than your kick and your bass, basically, like everything else, you should be shaving them off. Uh, and that way you're leaving a lot of space for the kick and the bass to have their own elements down there. And that's how you get a clean mix, right? Good piece of information, fundamentally correct, but there's definitely places and rules and, uh, you know, uh, certain, um, times where you wouldn't do that. You'd just leave the lows in something to, for, for character or whatever. Right. And, uh, quite often when I, uh, first got into production and just knew a bunch of these kind of weird little fundamental rules, it's almost like I would suck the life out of a mix by doing too many of those kind of rules. And I feel like there's probably got to be a similar thing with music, right? Like probably first year Berkeley oh God, students, yeah. you're hearing, you're hearing <laughs> them probably make these like way too sterile pieces of music or whatever, just by following the rules a little too much. Well, it, it becomes the rules are the music and, you know, not guidelines to help you clarify an idea because of course, you know, I'm, I'm very much victim to the idea. Like I'm going to, I'm going to high pass everything except the bass and the kick whenever I'm doing mixes or any, you know, cause I'm not coming at it from nearly as an experienced, um, perspective and I'm going to grab on to whatever I can because I, I want to get better. I want to learn. And so you grab on to these little things like, uh, the leading tone should always resolve to the tonic pitch or something like that. And you're going to grab onto these things and you're going to really focus on that rather than, all right, well, what is this doing? What is it really making me feel like? Do I like this thing? Why do I like this thing? You know, much more immediate pieces of um, information that you're going to learn and honestly matter more. But we're humans and we want to learn and we want to get better and we're going to take the the path of least resistance, which is somebody telling you that this is, this is an easy trick and it will make you better. And in a lot of ways it will, but you'll then focus on that and not the music itself. Mm. So in, in the sense of music theory, it sounded, sounded like what you're saying before is it's a good communicating tool, which I agree with. Um, so would you say that it, uh, the need for knowing music theory or the use of it differs greatly between say acoustic music and, and people playing instruments versus electronic music and people producing music by themselves in isolation in a studio? Well, I want to, I want to clarify one thing about the term theory, music theory. Um, because there, there are actually more, there's more than one definition. Um, there's the theory of there's harmonic theory, meaning, uh, understanding chords and chord progressions, which is honestly most of what theory quote unquote is. And then there's music analysis, which is just trying to, it's, you know, that's what happens after the fact. And then that's trying to meet music where it is and come up with a descriptive, um, come up with some kind of description of what the music actually is doing and what the music actually is. And the harmonic stuff, the stuff of like chord progressions can actually be very useful for, you know, acoustic performing instrumentalists, because that, 
that gives them the ability to improvise. That gives them the ability to write songs in certain ways, or at least it's a more practical tool. Um, you can analyze electronic music just the same way that you can analyze uh, acoustic music using various tools of music theory. It's just, you're coming at it from a very different direction. If you're improvising in the moment on an instrument, I think the value of understanding chords and chord progressions and keys is just a good thing. Honestly, like nothing can bad can come of that, but the bad thing quote unquote is just overly relying on that information as on the information in place of your ear, like uh, across any style of music information Mm -hmm. is not a replacement for your ear. Information Mm -hmm. is just something to clarify what it is that your ear is hearing, but ultimately the ear is the ultimate, you know, that's the thing that you should really focus on. Right. Or maybe like give some direction. There's been definitely times where I've been sort of stuck on a mix down being like, fuck, why doesn't this sound right? And in those times, knowing how to read meters really well, like spectrograms and, you know, LUFS meters and just visual readouts of stuff is it can be helpful to like look at a meter and be like oh it's because fucking everything's in mono (laughs) or something yeah (laughs) and then yeah because ear fatigue is a big thing like i yeah what there's an interesting i think parallel um you know when i make youtube videos i don't know anything about color correction which is a huge science you know knowing which color it's honestly it feels a lot like eqing and mixing when you get into color correction well it's more like mastering isn't it uh yeah i mean there there's it's not an, an exact analogy but to me, it feels like a similar kind of thing, I guess, because I don't really know what I'm doing in either case. I know a little bit more about EQ by this point, but I really don't know what I'm doing with color correction. So I go on YouTube and I read a couple of tutorials and they give me a couple of like helpful tips, like the the skin tone line on the vector graph. You should really make sure that the your skin tone matches the vector graph like this. And so I've been like fastidiously going through and making sure that every shot the skin tone line is exactly there. So the colors are right. And then I'm looking at the graph and making sure that it, it's the same as what the nice YouTube people told me to do. But I know for a fact that that is not really color correction. That is just me following the instructions and trying to get better by having this little tool that I then keep in the back of my brain to try and get better at. Mm-hmm. I've gotten way better at color correcting, not good, but just better than I was simply by doing the thing and learning to trust my eyes on what I'm seeing. And also by doing it over and over again, the same thing with music, your ear starts to become accustomed to different things that it wouldn't be before. But you kind of have to practice it and you kind of have to be in it so the information that you are given becomes secondary to the information that you are giving yourself with your ears. And that's, you know, it's a hard thing to get um, to get used to, but you know, I, I feel the same things. I feel the same feelings groping around with color correction the same way that when I was first starting to like deal with music production, I don't know what I'm hearing, but I'm just going to take whatever I can get here. Mm. Well, that's a good segue into YouTube stuff. Cause people had a bunch of questions about that. Um, all right. Yeah. Let's do it. YouTube. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I, before we get, get started, I mean, I definitely learned most of what I learned with Ableton live watching your, uh, older YouTube tutorials. So thank you so much. I just want oh, to yeah. thank you in person again for that. <laughs> of course, man. Um, yeah, it's, it's so, it's amazing to me actually, like he- hearing people like you and 
other larger names on YouTube now being like, yeah, man, it all started with your videos. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, man, it really truly did. It was great. Uh, you did a huge service. It's also kind of humbling too, because sometimes people will say that they got inspired by my videos. Mm. You have no idea what's going to happen when you hit upload 10 years or whatever after you upload something. Dude, yeah, my first YouTube tutorial was 2010, so ten, it was 10 years ago. <laughs> I was just naming a yeah. like long number, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. 10 years, wow. Yeah, my first video was uh, delay time tricks. And basically I was like, uh, it was back in the day where Ableton had this, uh, I mean, it still has the option to um, have repitch on the delay, mm. uh, but you used to have to right click the delay to get that menu up. Now it's like pretty obvious where it is. And I was just like, basically if you take 60,000 and divide it by the BPM, then you get a quarter note delay time. And then you can fuck with that value by dividing by two again or by four again to get like 16th notes or eighth notes. And this is a way that you can like use this repitch function really interestingly, cause you can lock in your delay time really easily by doing that equation and then mess around with it. Yeah. But anyway, that's that was, cool. Yeah. Like just the, whenever you have to calculate uh, delay times, that's when you know that you're really, you're really getting into the weeds. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So YouTube stuff, um, I guess like a, a good, the most interesting question I think that I got from somebody about that, cause it was all, obviously all the classic questions like what got you into it? And like, when did you start taking it seriously? And all of that kind of stuff. But I, I don't find that stuff to be that interesting. What I find to be the most interesting question here is like when you make a video do you kind of see that as a um do you sort of get inspired about an idea and then see making a video as kind of like a good opportunity to just learn more about a thing or do you learn about a thing and then be like i'm going to make a video about that now or yeah like i guess like which direction does that thought process go for you usually oh 100 percent. i want to learn about a thing and then i use the video as an excuse to learn about that thing dude that's so fucking cool yeah, I I don't know I don't know a whole lot until I take the time to research and then work on a video and then I learn a lot and then you know honestly part of making a video is just the like that's the biggest inspiring thing for me is the process of learning and coming up with arguments and coming up with ideas and analogies and connections and the longer that I work on a video the more I kind of like make these connections in my head mm. um yeah. And that's, that's honestly one of the things that keeps me, keeps me going. I mean, do you ever, do you ever make a piece of music with wanting to learn? If that makes any sense? Um, I mean, honestly, not really. I make, so I make music because it's cathartic for me. Like I, mm. I literally sit down and just go like, fuck, I'm just going to like stop working on emails and all this other bullshit and just write music for yeah. for a while. And then, I don't know, I find editing cathartic. I find fucking around in samplers and synths just like nice. <laughs> like it doesn't, like it's just something to me that's very comfortable. And like, I guess, cause I've done it for so long, it's a very familiar place for me to be and just feels very homely to be in Ableton just like clicking around. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a different feeling, I think for sure. Whenever I, I write music or versus making a video the video, it just tickles a different part of the brain, I think. And it, you know, whenever you do something for a living, quote unquote, you kind of have to keep the, the fire alive in a way. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, you don't want, don't want anything to become too rote and just doing the same thing over and over again, because you know, it works. And, mm. um, so for me, constantly learning about new things and, you know, following, following that impulse is the thing that really keeps me going. 
I could make videos about, you know, beginner music theory or, you know, bass guitar or something like that. Because I know, I know that stuff already, but I'm not passionate about it. I really am not um, in the same way that I'm passionate about m- things that I want to learn about. Like I want to learn about the music of the spheres or I want to learn about, you know, microtonal music or I want to learn about polyrhythms. You know, all these things that I just always had in the back of my brain that I might want to work on at some point. And then, hey, I can make a video about that. Oh, wow. Now I have an excuse to really go down this rabbit hole and the things, you know, the Wikipedia rabbit holes that we all or at least I always go down like late at night now becomes work now becomes a creative thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, a couple of days later, I have this whole script written out. I mean, then there's also video editing, like the aspect of video editing to me is incredibly rhythmic. Like it's all about meeting beats, especially comedy. Anytime I'm doing like some kind of meme or comedic bit (laughs) in a video, you know, um, the comedian Bill Burr apparently is a big fan of uh, Rick Beato, the other, like the YouTuber. Mm-hmm. And Bill Burr is a drummer and he right. will talk all the time about, you know, how comedy is just exactly the same thing as drumming. It's if you don't have the timing exactly right, something feels off. And a big part of it is just like honing exactly when to meet that beat. And video editing is like that. So I encourage every, any musician to try their hand at making a YouTube video or video editing, like in the style of like the meme style of YouTube, because it it gets you in touch a little bit more with just what's going on with video editing. And you can making that analogy between music and um, video is a, you know, very useful tool. I like to think about so many different things in life now by way of music, because they start to make sense a lot more. Um, And a lot of it just comes down to rhythm, I think. But um, are you using Resolve for editing or uh, no Final Cut? <laughs> okay, right. It's, uh, I mean, do you use? I don't know how much video editing you end up doing, but do you ever use Resolve? Yeah, Resolve is mostly what I use if, if I'm doing video editing, but I don't do a lot. I haven't. I really want. I kind of want to get back into YouTube, but I just know that it's such a. I don't know. My my original videos took me exactly the length of the tutorial to do. Like right. that's. I, I literally just hit recording on ScreenFlow at the time because I was using a Mac, and mm. I just talk for like. 20 minutes about whatever it was any problem like that i fucked up in the video i would use as an opportunity to explain that fuck up and then there would just be more information in the video like you know if i accidentally clicked on something and opened up a menu that i wasn't supposed to open up i'd be like oh uh yeah so make sure you don't click on that because otherwise this will open and then it's just like another thing in the video that adds information right so um so I never yeah. edited for that reason but also because i was lazy <laughs> and uh now the 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 standard for YouTubing is just so high that if I got back into it, I would want to, sorry, sorry to keep like talking, but like, um, no, no, I I just want to keep agreeing with you on that. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Like the standard is so high that if, if, if I got back into it, I'd want to do it sort of at the standard that, you know, not, maybe not as high of a standard as say someone like you or Andrew, but like, at least, you know, a little bit of editing and, and, you know, some cutaways to like a DSLR camera that isn't just my webcam and, you know, stuff like that. Well, but it's I, just such a time suck, right? Like it's something that um, if yeah. I got into that, it's like I would have to get out of something else. Well, and that's why uh, streaming has become more and more popular with musicians working in electronic music production, because you don't have to do that kind of thing and tell that kind of story with video editing. You can literally just work on your stuff and people will want to watch you work on your stuff. Mm. That's not really what YouTube is anymore. It was that at one point, but now YouTube, there's a a particular visual language that's required, 
um, to develop a YouTube channel that's just different. And that, you know, going back to what we were talking about AI, or at least what I was thinking about AI is like, you can either choose to adapt or you can choose to not adapt. And the way that some people have chosen to adapt is to flock to Twitch. And I've, I've seen that a lot more, especially since quarantine started. There's a lot more live streams going on. Um, and it's a very different language. And there's a different, you know, grind that's associated with Twitch and streaming. And there's a different grind that's associated with YouTube and video editing. It's just, you know, pick your poison. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually doing an eight-hour stream tomorrow. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's uh, what's the longest you've ever streamed? I think I've done like fifteen or sixteen hours before, but yeah, yeah, I've never never done the twenty four hours. I want to do one of those eventually. Yeah, and that's that's super popular with the gaming streamers is the twenty four hour stream, which yeah, I you know there it it's its own kind of insane um, insane thing. But I, I really want to try a twenty four hour stream at some point. Um, you know. <laughs> One of the big things that I don't know if you noticed this, but um, capture cards and webcams are now being the prices are completely gouged. Mm-hmm. Like a webcam, a Logitech webcam should cost fifty dollars right now, um, but they cost three hundred dollars on Amazon Jesus. because everybody wants to start streaming. <laughs> right? Yeah, it makes sense. Damn, lucky I bought one before that. <laughs> yeah, and I did too. But I really wanted to get a capture card so I could, you know, stream with my nice DSLR camera. And those are also like compl- the like three times what they should be, but everybody is streaming. Um, that is, you know, because of obvious reasons. Everybody's indoors. Right, right. Well, uh, I want to move on to some stuff about actually writing music, mm. and then we can probably wrap after that. Uh, so, some questions that people had about writing music is: Do you have like any melodic or harmonic tricks for writing a B part for an already well developed A part? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the style, right? Um, what you would do in the 1920s is very different than what you would do in the 2020s. Right, right. Um, the traditional, like when you're when you're taught this in jazz school, and I'm just going to do it from my perspective, is if you are in one key for the A sections, you go to a slightly different key for the B section to create some kind of contrast. Um I also like to think, I mean, I think contrast is the big thing, but I like to think, um, all right, if the A section feels kind of majory in its chord progression, I want to try and make the B section feel kind of minory in its conception. So, you know, I use uh, maybe, you know, start on, if the A progression is like C, A minor, F, or something relatively simple like that, the B section will be like A minor, E minor, you know, just something that has more minor context. Um, Mm. I think contrast and this actually, this is actually something that music theory can help with because it does give an, a a voice to some of these ideas where it feels minory or it feels majory. How do I contrast that? How do I identify this element in the sound of the a section, this chord progression? And how do I look towards another general field of inquiry? It's not saying you should do this or you shouldn't do this. It just gives you some ideas. Um, Contrast is always the big thing between sections and mm. you, we get stuck in loops literally like we suck, you know, there's the age old issue in Ableton and electronic music production of constantly having these loops and then not knowing where to go after that. Think about what makes a loop a loop. Um, you have four chords or something like that. And what could you do? That's not four chords, maybe one chord, 
you know, something as basic as that. Just think the opposite of whatever it is, the element that makes that loop that loop. I think that that can help. Um, mm-hmm. Always be looking for contrasts in your B section. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Usually, um, so what I've been doing for quite a while now is I'll, I'll just have a shitload of project files on my computer and I'll sort of name them all by key and tempo. Mm. And at some point when I'm putting an album together, I'll be like, oh, this track's like, you know, a minute 30 and I really like it, but it feels like it just needs to be longer and have another section. So I'll just scour my hard drive for another thing that I made <laughs> just completely unrelated to it that's just in the same key and tempo or roughly the same key and tempo, and then just literally drag that ALS into the session and just paste it on. Yeah. So it'll be like some completely unrelated other section to this tune, but it sounds like related because it's the same key and tempo, and then it's just like the most epic switch. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, there's else. a whole language now. I mean, it comes from, like, I feel like DJs and what you guys do, just switching between tunes also, but also it, it's uh, made its way into hip-hop, the idea of the beat switch. Mm. That's a new idea, where it's something completely different, but not completely different. Like there's a there's a relationship there, but it's it's something that's constr- that's creating contrast. And because it's contrasting the idea that you've been like chilling on, it, it's exciting. It's like oh wow. Yeah, and, actually, I noticed that in that Travis Scott tune. Um, yeah, uh, sicko mode. Yeah, dude, fuck. It's got like three or four. Different, it's basically th- like three songs in one song. Yeah, which is is new. Like, um, I have a friend Ben Levin who's a YouTuber. He he calls. He says that hip hop is the new prog rock where you can just do anything and it's cool because you're just doing anything. And when you listen to, uh, you know, sicko mode, it's like, this makes no sense. And yet it kind of makes sense. And you're, you're having to like really understand your relation, like the reaction you're having to these contrasts. I think it's cool. Um, you have to be very sensitive to what is what it is exactly that you're doing. But I think when you're just doing it right, like that's super exciting when stuff changes so radically, it, it also yeah, requires, I, I feel like a confident, like a confidence, like I am right in making this decision. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. This, this, this sometimes when I make things that are just too contrasted where I'm like, Oh, that's probably not, not going to sit well with many people and then decide yeah. not to do it because of like the abstracted audience I built in my head that won't like it. Hmm. And that's hard to like be that confident to say, no, no, you will like it because it's Mr. Bill and you will like Mr. Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Um, Do you have any studio session habits or rituals that you swear by? Um, Not really. (laughs) Yeah, me Um, either, honestly. I mean, making a coffee is probably the main one and sitting down. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it changes. And also I'm, I'm... I do music production a little bit, but it's not my main thing. Um, no, you know, whatever is inspiring me at the moment. Uh, I'm constantly learning. Sometimes I work on something for days and then don't go back to it for a couple months. And then, you know, I, I don't know. Do you, do you, yeah. That's, you a, even, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's another good question. Actually going back to the YouTube stuff, like how, how long does it take you on average to make a YouTube video? That really depends. Um, for some of the more research involved ones that might take, you know, weeks, um, you know, anywhere between, I'm, I'm honestly guessing 80 to a hundred hours for some of them. Um, but then for some, it's just like talking to a camera and I know how to talk to the camera in a way that I can edit it all funny and jump cut. And then it might be five to 10 hours. Um, it just depends on what it is that I want to do. Um, you know, it depends on the goals 
And sometimes I'll be working on something that I know is just a dead end and then I shelve it and then I come back to it later and then it ended up being good that I shelved it because now I have a very different perspective. And that's of course the same thing with music is, you know, you'll work on something for forever and it'll be, you'll be in the flow state. And then obviously then at one point it's just like, all right, we're done. That's the end of the idea. There's nothing else right now. (laughs) We're done. Uh, Time to move on. And that happens with videos. Definitely. But Mm -hmm. the thing with videos is that it's easier. I feel like it's easier to move on from um, writer's block because the, you know, you can always just end a video and then it's fine, but it's harder to just end a piece of music when you know there's more to be said. Well, also I think we, we put, yeah, we put so much pressure, I think on like music too, to be this perfect, like timeless shit. Whereas sometimes, I mean, it's, you know, sometimes it's just not, it's just a thing that you had fun making one day. And if you want to, you know, people want to listen to that and are interested in that, maybe they'll get something out of it. But I think there's this, uh, like giving up some of this pressure is kind of important too. That's something I try to do a lot is just be like, look, man, like there's, you're not making like the, the next fucking Led Zeppelin four or whatever. <laughs> like, it's just, you're making beats, like just make a few beats and who gives a shit? Yeah. I mean, we want something to be profound because we, the stuff that inspires us is profound. And then mm-hmm. when we don't live up to that standard, then it just feels like, what, what am I even bothering? But there's so mm-hmm. much non-profound shit out there that is really good and also might inspire other people in different ways. And, you know, being precious with your creations, that's, you know, something that's hard to, that's hard to let go of. Um, there's this uh, amazing YouTube video maker by the name of Bill Wirtz. And oh, if you don't guy. know Bill, yeah, Bill Wirtz is awesome. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he talks about how perfectionism is, a, the worst negative trait uh, a, an artist or like a, somebody uh, who makes things can have. And he has, he feels he has, he's too perfectionist, but that's not like a good thing. You know, there's the classic joke of like, you walk into a, jo- um, a job interview and they ask you to name a negative trait. And you said, I'm too much of a perfectionist as like kind of a humble brag. Right. But in the, in the case of, you know, creation, creation, especially in music, that that's bad. That's really bad. You want to, you want to be able to move on and be able to accept the flaws in the music for what they are. And maybe somebody will have a different reaction to your music than you, you do because they're a different person and they will come at your music in a different way than you did. And if you're trying to achieve perfection, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to really ever get there. Yeah. That's the thing, right? It's like one man's trash is another man's treasure kind of thing. Like, uh, I feel like I, I noticed that a lot in some of the breakcore records that I really love, like, um, some of Aphex Twins old breakcore stuff and like Square Pusher and, you know, some of these really amazing records, but they just, and for their times were crazy forward thinking, but, um, listening to them now, it's like, you can hear so many little clicks and pops and weird hums from gear and I don't know, just weird like edits that just don't sound as possibly tight as they could be and and i think about it all the time i'm like oh man you could like really edit that way tighter and it'd be so much sicker but i don't actually think it would be that much sicker like i think it's kind of nice with all its flaws and stuff and also it's um sometimes these looser edits are like preferable and you know if you listen to them they just sound more human whereas if you edit it too much it like can sound too too perfect can sometimes sound like wrong and have that uncanny valley thing going on with it yeah and it's also interesting because the, you know, going back to what we were talking about of like, it's all in our, all in our brains, like the way that we hear music, 
you go back and listen to something that you thought was like really profound and really excited you back when you were first starting. And then you listen to the same thing with the ears that you've developed over the course of, you know, your entire career as a musician. And then you listen to, you hear all the flaws or you hear all these weird things that are maybe a little bit off-putting to you. Um, I, I, this is kind of dumb example, but I really enjoyed the Allman brothers when I was in high school for some reason. And, you know, it really inspired me in a lot of ways jam bands. I kind of like some jam bands. Don't judge me. But, um, I then have gone back to listen to the Allman brothers and it's just messy. Like I I don't get the same enjoyment that I did back when I was maybe 14 or 15 (laughs) years old. And with that, with that mindset, like I think about all the things that I could have listened to back when I was a teenager that I might really, really enjoy now because I now have the ear and the taste to understand what's going on in the music like, uh, for example, I, I think Stevie Wonder is amazing, is an amazing songwriter, but I knew I did not particularly care for him in high, in high school. I was just like, what is this? Then, nah. Um, so it's your ear changes and you change. And what I enjoy right now will be very different from what I enjoy 20 years from now. And if somebody was trying to be, make the perfect record, uh, you know, it, it it doesn't matter because at one point it might be the perfect record for me. And then 20 years later, it won't be the perfect record for me. Right. It seems like the only way to get around that problem is to start writing a record when you're 10 years old and finish it when you're 70. So it takes a perfect snapshot of all of your feelings over your entire lifetime or something. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a, that'd be an art project. Wouldn't that? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, 50 yeah. Well, I mean, project. well, but then at the same time, then that's just the same thing as you're saying your discography, right? Right. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All the stuff that you've released and you know, I released some absolute bullshit, but you know, some <laughs> of the stuff that I did release when I was 17 release quote unquote, just like little things that still float around on the internet, except not, not on MySpace because all the music on MySpace got lost. So I don't know where any of that music went. Um, yeah, I mean, it's bad, but at the same time I listen to it and I, I hear stuff that like, Oh, I actually, it's, it's not bad. This is it's all right. (laughs) And you know, that might change. It's all, it's all, um, just what perspective you have right now. Right. Um, cool. Well, I have only one more question for you and that is if you were a banana, would you call yourself Bernardum Neely or Adam (laughs) Peely? Uh, Adam Peely, I feel like is more my GM, (laughs) but Neely. Oh God, it's so good. I got a lot of meme questions and most of them I was just like, ah, fuck that question. But, but that one was too good. That's a solid question. Uh, (laughs) I'm glad. (laughs) How long have you had your uh, discord for? Uh, actually I, I got in it pretty early. I think I started it in 2015. Oh wow. Yeah. Pretty much just when discord launched is when I started it. Cause I was super into counter-strike at the time. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I, I still haven't gotten on the Discord train, but I just talking to a couple of people in the past week, I really need to, because, you know, the community, it seems like a really easy way of just creating that. It's super cool. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, for you, it'd be great. Like, if you just, like, plug it in one of your videos, you get a shitload of people in there. It's really, yeah, great way to... It's kind of like a Facebook group, but just you, know, you have more channels and more separation and you can at people a bit better. It's just a bit more eloquent way of communicating with a with a whole community of people for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. Got to do that. So yeah, thanks, totally. Mr. Bill's Discord. 
<laughs> thanks for the thanks for the uh, inspiration for sure man well fuck thank you so much for coming on man i, I really yeah, appreciate man. you dedicating like 90 minutes of your time to this uh yeah this was an absolute pleasure and you know we went down all these weird detours and i'm, I'm glad i kind of expected that but i also you know it's not a typical podcast that i'm on where i get to talk about ai and you know <laughs> all this other stuff that we're talking about is super cool yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like you have your YouTube where you talk about very researched things. I have my tutorials where I talk about like just tricks in Ableton. Um, you know, I have all the like different things that I've done here and there, but I never, I don't really, I never had a platform. You know, I have my, my obviously music releasing platform and, you know, I do shows and all that stuff, but I don't really have this. I never had this platform before where I could just express all these other ideas that I had in this like long form kind of way, which is why I started the podcast is to, to talk about exactly all this kind of shit. Yeah. I mean, it's super cool to, um, just to be able to express the ideas with other people who are able to express the ideas and, you know, it gets, gets you pumped. I'm now already thinking about a lot. So thanks, man. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well, hell yeah, man. All right. Thanks again. All right. Take it easy. All right. You too. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.